I actually had someone tell me, you should think about doing a PhD instead. There was a professor at Bradley and I said, well, I already took a job. And he said, well, I can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's what he said. He, said he, called, he told me the next day. I, I called the guy and he said, go ahead. This is the Geese Download, a podcast from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business. I'm your host, Tim Sinclair. And today, my guest is Larry DeBrock, Dean Emeritus and Professor Emeritus of Finance at Geese. Larry spent more than 40 years at the University of Illinois, retiring, or mostly retiring, just a few years ago. Most career paths wind and shift and meander for a while, but Larry's didn't. Quite the opposite, in fact. The former dean's time in education has looked much more like a straight line. And, as you'll hear, it has definitely come full circle. I really just wanted to start with, you know, when when you were, let's say, elementary school or junior high, high school, even even into college, what did you expect that you would be doing with the next 40 years of your life versus what you ended up doing with the last 40 years or so? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, um, I grew up on a, I grew up on a small farm uh, in uh basically northern Illinois, about an hour north of Peoria, 300 acres of corn and beans, a few head of cattle, and seven milk cows, and 40 chickens. Uh, my my graduating class had 29 students in it, 13 boys and 16 girls, uh, and uh, basically very few people ever went to college there. You know, it, it was a rural area, and uh, lots of people farmed or worked at uh, – International Harvester or John Deere because it was pretty close to uh, the Quad Cities. So I um, did go to college, obviously, a place in Peoria called uh, Bradley University. And uh, I did that because I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, I was good at math. And and it turns out I was really good at math. And I basically just decided to do math instead of engineering. And I ended up going to Cornell to get a PhD in economics because because economists uh, need to know a lot of math. And so they some guys at, at Bradley said, you should go out and get yourself a PhD in economics because you know an awful lot of math and it'll, it'll help you out in that particular field. So I did. And I got uh, an offer from Illinois. I got actually got several offers, but I took the one from Illinois because I grew up in Illinois and I said, this looks like a nice place. And that's where I've been ever since. Was your goal once you were getting the PhD and decided, you know, uh, that working for John Deere or working um, as an engineer or whatever other routes you had considered weren't going to be your path, did you plan to teach or did you plan to get out there into the working world and, and do? My wife and I agreed that we were going to take, I was going to take a job. I got a pretty nice job offer from a, a economics consulting office in uh in boston and um and they wanted somebody like me in a sense that i had uh i had written some papers on uh on technological change and so they uh wanted me to uh to come work for them and i thought that would be a great idea they offered uh, a significant amount of money compared to what i thought uh, i was worth uh, at the time but uh, it turns out my uh, one of my advisors at Bradley, um, I told him what I was going to do, 
And he said, well, what offers do you have? And I told him I had an offer from uh, different schools, Purdue, Illinois, and stuff like that. And he said, well, you should definitely go the academic route. You can always go later to the non-academic route. But if you go non-academic to begin with, it's going to be harder for you to get back in because they're, you know, you're going to have uh, you have different barriers if you've gone out to the private sector first and then decide you're going to come back to academics. You can always go to academics, and if you don't like it, go back to the private sector. So I said, okay. So I took the Illinois offer, and um, and he was right. I was I was quite happy being a, uh, an instructor here, and uh, it worked out well. Before you became dean, and it was easy when people said, so what do you do for a living? You would, you know, it's easy to say I'm, I'm dean of, you know, whatever school and, and whatever. But but before then, um, how did you describe what you did? Or, or maybe better asked, what were you hoping that you were teaching students to be able to do when they got to the working world? Your, your life's work was was what? My life's work was teaching microeconomics. Uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'll probably say this again sometime during this interview, but I'm kind of an elitist about this. I think microeconomics is a, an incredibly important subject that all of our students should take. Uh, I think, you know, the only way you can actually understand how to read the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times is to understand how markets work and how prices are formed and how profits go up or go down. And, um, and so I, that's kind of what I did. I taught microeconomics for, uh, for 40 years. Uh, I taught, uh, I started teaching that uh, basically to undergrads early on when I was here, but then later they, they moved me into the MBA program, which in those days was all uh, residential, right? It was a two year, people lived here in Champaign-Urbana and, 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 and got an MBA in two years. And um, in about 1993, I started teaching um, the microeconomics course in there. And I taught it all the way up until until I became dean. Let's say one of the two of us would like a, about a seventh grade definition of microeconomics. <laughs> How would you describe that to, to those who, um, who, who need the refresher? The easiest description of it is just to look it up in the dictionary. It says microeconomics is the study of the of the problems of uh, allocation of scarce goods and services. And so essentially microeconomics says somehow there's not enough to go around. That's what scarcity means. There's never enough to go around. And essentially um, for perhaps the vast amount of recorded history, uh, people who decided who got what were the king or the emperor or the dictator or whatever they, you know, they, they would say, okay, you're going to get this. You're going to get this. You're going to get this. And then essentially uh, what we call Western economics is sort of evolved and people started to understand that in fact, markets could do this for us. So they could have a place where prices would be formed and the prices, if products are incredibly scarce, prices would be very high. If products are not scarce at all, prices will be very low. And in the meantime, people will voluntarily decide to go into a line of business and make a certain product, whether it's automobiles or widgets or uh, sourdough bread or whatever. They'll make this and and they'll keep doing it as long as people give them enough money that it makes them um, a, a worthwhile 
a living. And that's kind of how microeconomics works. Is that we figure out how do how do people how do economies handle the issue that we just don't have enough to go around. It's probably hard to narrow down forty years of teaching and research and leadership. But what is something that you feel like most people don't know but should know that you've learned in your time or something you discovered in your research that was a big surprise to you that that impacts uh, more of us than, than we even realize impacts us? I think a lot of people are kind of blind to a lot of this stuff, but uh, you're on the inside. What What have you learned that you think everybody needs to know? First of all, I'll repeat what I said a minute ago, and that is I really think people need to figure out how markets work. People just guess and say, well, you know, my mom, for example, will say, well, that's, you know, those prices were just set by corporations to take our money. Well, that's not, that's not quite correct. I mean, <laughs> these things, these things, uh, it's true. Corporations will, um, will have, uh, will have some control over prices, but not very much. I mean, Honda can't really raise its price of cars very much because to- to- Toyota's right there and they're making almost comparable cars. And, uh, so there's, uh, there is competition there and, uh, and, and that's kind of how the, the, the process works is that, um, uh, you know, lots of people think that, uh, when the gas prices went up, that it was, you know, the, that, that essentially there was some, the oil companies were out to try and, and make more money. Well, I don't think that's, a, that's probably pretty not true. What was going on there was that the, there was just a lot of a shortage of that particular product. And as I said earlier, when things are very scarce and when they get scarcer, prices are going to go up. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, if the price of beef is higher today than it was a year ago, that's true. Well, that's because there's just not enough. There's not as much of that around as there is. Price of pork, it's pretty low because there's still a pretty good pork market out there, but there's not so much uh, in in the beef market. And so those things, those prices are going to change to reflect scarcity. So it's not just because Circle K wants more of my money. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, how has education, uh, how has the University of Illinois, the College of Business changed in, in, in 40 years? Uh, I would imagine you have to be one of the longest tenured. Um, what have you seen, and I'm sure you can't boil it all down, but, but what have you seen during your time there um, in terms of how things have progressed? several ways to look at this one is you could look at education uh and you know our graduate education in the college of business uh you know ever since i've been here when i arrived back in 1979 it's a long time ago the accounting department was uh either number one or number two in the country depending on whether you were reading whether you know you know it'd be university of texas or uh, at austin or illinois and they would swap back and forth and back and forth, depending on if you're looking at, uh, you know, U.S. News and World Report or, or Business Week or whatever the rating service was. So we've always been extremely strong in graduate education. Same with the, the finance, the master's in the finance program and the master's in, uh, in management uh, and our, our, our marketing programs at graduate level. Uh, but I think what's 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 different now compared to what it was like when I first got here is I think the under the quality of the undergraduate program here is really amazing. And, uh, it's grown, uh, significantly, uh, basically since about the year 2000, it started to started, it just started to switch around. And what happened is we got a lot, 
we got a lot more people who wanted to come to the University of Illinois. And I think some of that was because they understood that it was a, a relatively inexpensive opportunity to get a great, a really good education. You know, it's a standout public university. Um, and if you're a student in Illinois, you got the Illinois tuition rate. You could go to another standout public institution like Michigan and get a great undergraduate degree in business, but you have to pay a lot more money because you're an out-of-state student. So we have the advantage of having this giant sea of a remarkably uh, lot of people up in the Chicago area. The city of Chicago, as well as the Collar counties, uh, produce uh, an awful lot of people who, who end up going to college. And we uh, have been able to get a, more and more of, of a strong group out of that. And as a result, we've got, um, you know, people who are, uh, who have just excellent incoming credentials. Uh, our placement rate is just, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> our undergraduate placement rate is a number that every parent in the country would want when you tell them it's 98, 98 to 99% placement rate. Uh, is you know that's what you want. <laughs> you're gonna go to get to a good school and get and you're gonna and you're gonna get a good job out of it, and that I think is really what's helped a lot in the sense that we got stronger because our undergraduates have been so strong. Our graduate program always was strong, and then um, we have been able to uh, get a lot of people to uh, come, a lot of student uh, faculty to come to uh, to Champaign Urbana. It's a great. You know, we have a great advantage here, and that is that uh, houses are, you know, basically 20% of the prices if you're going to work at Berkeley or if you're going to work at UCLA or you're going to work at UC University of uh, Santa Barbara, all those places, uh, let alone Boston and, 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 and New York City, if you're going to work at uh, NYU. Or, it's just very expensive compared to what you can get here in Champaign. Prices are pretty cheap for houses. And uh, it has allowed us to become very aggressive in recruiting over the years uh, and getting people to who are having two or three children and they're in a three-story three story walk up in Manhattan uh, <laughs> and they got to get their groceries up there and, and, and they only got two bedrooms because, and, and you know, here in Champaign, we got, uh, you know, we have nice grocery stores, lots of them, and we have big houses and yards. And so uh, we've been able to uh, capitalize on that and become pretty aggressive in getting uh, some great faculty. I will say the irony is not lost that the uh, professor of microeconomics is talking about the markets when it comes to why Champagne <laughs> is such a great place to live. <laughs> That's right. I, yeah, it is true. I would imagine there are some, perhaps, who started in the year you started with the University of Illinois back in the late 70s who aren't maybe huge fans of online learning and IMBAs and all sorts of things. Um, where do you stand on you know, how technology has worked its way into the classroom? Do you feel the same now as you would have five or ten years ago? Talk me through that. Yeah, this is a difficult topic in the sense that you're definitely correct. And it doesn't have to be people who came back in the 70s or even the early 80s. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there, there are more than a few people who think that uh, that that's not the way we should be doing it. We should be uh, we should be teaching. Uh, uh, we should be standing in front of students and face to face and teaching that way. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to people who have that view. 
Um, my experience of teaching on in, in the online has been uh, exactly the opposite. I think it's um, I think it's great, uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, I first stumbled into this when I was teaching in the executive MBA program that we had. We no longer have that program, but we had an executive MBA in Chicago. It was a program where every other weekend uh, students would come in on Thursday night and then we would have classes all day Friday and all day Saturday and faculty had different schedules. Okay, so I would do that uh, for four weekends, which since, since it was every other weekend, it was basically two months of, of, of doing that. And um, I when I became dean, I had to go once on for one of those weekends to um, to China. That meant it was actually over the weekend, so I couldn't take my class in there. And um, so, but there was a person here at the College of Business who was who was basically running what we called e-learning at the time. And she said, you know, what you really need to do is you need to do a flipped classroom effect. And I said, what's that mean? And she said, well, the traditional classroom is you will go in as a faculty member and you'll stand up at the front like the sage on the stage and you'll talk to students and then you'll make them have assignments and go home and work on this stuff. And they'll be trying to solve these problems at their house. And they'll come back the next time. And you'll now say, oh, how'd that go? Here's the new lecture. And I give them a lecture. That was the old school. But the flipped classroom is you do it the opposite. So the faculty member uh, in a flipped classroom will actually record the video. He or she will sit in front of a, a high, high, high definition camera with a nice microphone and do their video along with drawing things on a, a blackboard or on in my case i did it on a, a tablet pc um and you upload that and the students then they are on their own to read all the content and then when you go to class that's when you work out problem sets that's when you take the front page of the new york times and fake them figure out explain to me exactly why this is happening can you you know who wants to talk about why this is happening here and explain it because that's the material that we've just been talking about and it turns out students love this because sometimes i talk too fast but the other thing is nice about it is that they can go back if they don't quite understand it, they can just back it up and, and do another five minutes back. You know, they just back it up and say, what did he really say there? And just replay that five minutes, maybe four times before they finally understand it. Um, and uh, so I did that. I, I, I recorded the entire Friday and Saturday's worth of lectures I would have had to do and put it up there. And the students went crazy over it. They said, this is the best ever. Uh, we can just work out at our house. We can get together with our teams because they all had teams in those days. Uh, it was sort of a big thing in, in executive MBA was you had organized teams and they would get together and they would have a team session and watch that stuff and eat popcorn and figure out what was going on. Uh, and then when we did classes, uh, I would just sort of work out answers for different problem sets. So that was my first experience with this. And I think it's, it, it works great. I mean, here in the IMBA, we all record, you know, every faculty member records his or her lectures and the students watch the lectures. Uh, and then they have office hours. They, we have live sessions where I just go in and they just come and start talking to me. And uh, sometimes there can be 200. Sometimes there can be 90 students. Sometimes there can be 300 depending on what time of, of the week it is and stuff. Um, and we sort of talk through stuff, but you know, they've got all the lectures uh, uh, completely 
all the economics they need is in those lectures I, I, I basically gave them. You retired, uh, technically, a couple of years yeah, I ago, that's, that's right. as I understand it, um, but but not completely. Why, uh, what are you back for and for how long? I have been teaching that microeconomics course since I retired, uh, the same course that I te started teaching back in 1993 to, to live people, but now I've been doing it in the IMBA, and um, I'm doing it one more time. Uh, so on October 12th, I will start that course. Of, it's an eight-week course. It'll end on December uh, 13th, and that'll be it. That's my last course. I've already signed the paper, uh, and Dean, Dean Brown has a letter from me saying, uh, as well as the department head and the Department of Finance saying, you know, I'm done. I'm not doing any more teaching for you guys. <laughs> and and uh, other people have, there's, there's a line of people who would like to get in the program. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of quality people who, who will be able to teach, uh, teach that course. And I have, uh, I've recently become a, a, a grandfather and uh, my daughter and her son and her husband have uh, produced a uh, couple grandsons up in um, up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I was going to ask, what does a former dean and microeconomics professor do with his retirement? But you answered part of the question. I, I understand you're a, a sports fan, specifically uh, a Cubs fan. Is that right? I am a Cubs fan. I'm a Cubs fan and a and a, and, a, and a Bears fan. Those are those are my two uh, my two weaknesses. I'm much more of a Cubs fan than a Bears fan, but that's mostly because I've always liked baseball better than anything. Although, um, I do have uh, an opportunity. I, I usually get to go to see one Bears game a year because I have a colleague of mine who was in the econ department here at Illinois, but he's now gone up to be the department head at the economics department at the university of Illinois, Chicago, but he has season tickets and uh, to the bears. And he usually invites me to, yeah, he does invite me every year to, to, to one game. So, so you're long suffering with those two teams as your favorites. Yeah, that's true. That's true. For those considering, I guess, uh, jumping into some sort of business program, whether it be undergrad or grad, is, is there a piece of advice or a way of thinking or something that you've tried to instill in your students about how they need to look at education, how they need to look at um, the career path that they've chosen. What's kind of a, a life lesson that you would offer to a young people? Uh, wow. I sound old when I said young people, uh, <laughs> you would offer these students um, as, as they move forward. I tell everybody the same thing about this question. People ask me this question. And the answer to this question is you just got to keep working. You got to get, you, you can't take college. You can't go into any college program. I don't care where it is. Uh, you know, University of Timbuktu or, uh, or Harvard or, or Michigan or Illinois. You, you have to work. You got to get there and you got to decide you're going to do something here and not just drink your brains out and, and, and have, and, and have, you know, have too much time parting. And I'm not saying you can't, you know, you can, everybody can have a good time every now and then, but you just have to devote yourself to understanding that it's only going to be good enough for you. If you really actually put your time in and, 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 and work and work for it. And eventually you'll get out and, um, you know, I don't know of anybody who, who knows what they're going to do uh when they're a freshman or sophomore 
what they're going to do when they graduate uh, two years later. Nobody I know uh, knows that. I mean, I sure, I surely did not know that. I took a job. Um, fact of the matter is, I, I, when I was at Bradley, I took a job at Caterpillar, uh, a full-time job in their econ unit. Uh, I accepted it. Uh, I signed the offer letter. And um, subsequent to that, uh, I actually had someone tell me, you should go and get, you should think about doing a PhD instead. There was a professor at Bradley uh, who told me that. And I said, well, I already took a job. And he said, well, I can fix that. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. He he said, he said, he called, he told me the next day, I I called the guy and he said, go ahead. He said, if you're going to get a PhD at Cornell, go for it. And if you decide you don't want it, uh, the job offer will still be here uh, later. Uh, So it was great. I went out there, but I I certainly didn't have any idea I was going to do that. Um, uh, You just have to keep working at it. That's what you got to do. Do the things you don't want to do now so you can do the things you do want to do later, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right, my friend. Be sure to join us for the next Geese Download. In the meantime, you can learn more about the Geese College of Business at geesebusiness.illinois.edu.